0: maybe now we, we went basically into the SMART goals and how they, those might be useful and appropriate in a personal training or coaching scenario at a certain point, but they, um, they have to be complemented by a more um, substantial and more a deeper meaning or understanding of the whole, whole process. So let's say um, you, we've taken a client in either personal training or coaching scenario through a six month period of weight loss plus muscle gain, um, down ten kilos, build five kilos in, in um, same same time of muscle. Not very realistic, but just any, actually any the beginner with the beginner, man it happens all the time, yeah, yeah, maybe. So anyway, like we've got him there, and he's kind of enjoying it. Um, and like, as a personal trend, you should probably, on top of, making him reach his goals make the process enjoyable by i don't know making him do high rep squats puking numerous times during <laughs> that might be a good um, yeah, I think place people to go. yeah exactly uh but no like um choosing exercise that the person enjoys um choosing rep ranges that the the client or person might enjoy those are maybe like strategies to slowly um yeah Build this uh, intrinsic motivation Um, now maybe if we go a little bit further to the other side of the spectrum so people who are in the sport forever they can't think of not doing it Um, they always have 200 grams of protein every day like if they train or not they're, yeah they have certain habits established and um, they're not going anywhere anytime soon unless they you know might also face circumstances that are um, detrimental to their intrinsic motivation, like constant prep. So, what do you think in general, like um, for lifters and athletes who have been training for a long time and they want to keep this part of their their lifestyle, part of their um, yeah, what they do? Um, what do you think some preventative strategies uh, could be for um, what, that you can implement, even if you want to do a uh, uh, bodybuilding prep?
1: Yeah, I think. Um... It's, it's, it's very similar, but it's, it's a little different. Like, you, we've, now we've got someone with the assumption of they've been in the game a bit. They're, they're probably not going anywhere. Um, but one thing you do see among bodybuilders, even who have a strong attachment to the sport, is that burnout can get to them, you know? Uh, athlete burnout is, is a whole area of research. And it happens to people who are highly motivated, been in the game a long time, years, um, and they've developed a lot of grit and resilience and self-belief but they can find that, that, that constant grinding, if they've set up their, their motivational perspective in such a way uh, that they, are, they identify with it, they're highly attached, but it just becomes like, I don't like this. Um, then they get bitter and they can find themselves like, this is, this is I don't wanna do this sport anymore. Like um, it can feel ruined for someone if you listen to the language. And I think that's almost more tragic uh, than than someone who just never quite got hooked in because uh, they couldn't keep up the steam, you know. Um, because to to be someone who played a sport your whole life, uh, got in, fell in love with lifting, started competing, and you were defined in many ways by movement. You know, you're someone who expresses yourself physically, who appreciates athleticism, pushing yourself and seeing what you can do, and then just finding that one day uh you, you love drinking this milk but the milk just soured you know it curdled and there's nothing you could do to get it back and they were no longer selling you at the store you didn't want to go back to that store that's that's kind of the experience of burnout uh you know anytime someone brings up bodybuilding you're just like oh that's thing that, that ruined my life you know and I, but i liked it it you was know, it's it's a, it's a tough thing i've seen it and it's really it's really really quite sad and they're the type of person who sometimes you know i'll talk to them about how i feel about bodybuilding and. If um, they either won't be able to relate to it, or if they do relate to it, you can see a spark getting reinvigorated, uh, which means there was a an unfinished chapter there. You know, someone ripped the pages out at the end of that book, um, and I think that's that's unfortunate. Um, and many times it comes from uh, having a relationship with the sport that has that masochistic element. You know, you're joking about doing you know 20 rep squats and puking and all that, and I think. If you are, and this is where personal trainers need to understand that if they love bodybuilding and love hardcore stuff, that they're quite maybe a different breed. Uh, and I don't mean that as like, like don't, don't pat yourself on the back. You're weird. This is a problem for your, your personal training. This means you can't relate to most people. Um, you know what you like, which is great. Like I, I do love, like when I sit down and I write a training program, I used to read about training programs before I knew how to write them. I would get uh, bought in. The idea that this was the, the, the gonna unlock the next uh you know little little bit of spurt of growth that I was gonna get. And then I got really excited about the trading. And I thought, oh, that's gonna be hard, a five by five. I'm gonna be like I imagined myself, you know, getting my grind on, you know, in in, in a in the gym, getting a spot, you know, having my post-workout shake, following a diet plan, all all the little things that I get sucked in uh by the mystique or the aura uh or the uh the kind of the, the cultural aspects related to the experience of of doing this thing to get me to my goal and if if i had to do 20 reps squats if i if i threw up like that was all just um a byproduct of that and it pointed to the fact that that uh, i'm doing this thing i like so that that certain uh, element of um goal-oriented masochism was exciting to me uh it was me forging myself in the iron you know Um, It was the the, the heat of battle, you know, all all these kind of silly things we think of when it comes to bodybuilding that really get us excited. Um, That may not apply at all to someone who just stepped into your office and hasn't trained for two decades. Uh, You need to find the equivalent for them. What gets them really excited? And you can't find that out uh, unless you go through the process of asking a lot of questions and them figuring that out. Um, So, yeah, it's very important to do things you enjoy. Um, because like you said right now uh, with the whole lockdown from coronavirus you're getting it done it's not perfect you're not super enjoying it um, but man I, I tell you what I have certain days where I'm not that motivated to, to pack 20 kilos of a bar into the back of my car and 70 kilos of weight and drive to the local park and then do a yoke walk with 90 kilos and to go do Olympic lifting in a flat piece of grass like that's I don't get excited about that part. I'm always appreciative once I'm out there and I'm in nature and I'm snatching. and I'm like, hey, how cool is this? Um, But, you know, the fact that I actually go out there and do it, it makes me grateful that I've developed this relationship with training and it makes me appreciative, you know, uh, that the that it does sometimes need to be a discipline, you know, Uh, but the fact that I have changed my self-perception and who I am in relation to lifting and that I've developed commitment. Uh, and then I figured out what really motivates me means that when it isn't perfect, I can have the discipline to do it anyway, and then feel good about it afterwards. But imagine if every session felt like I had to do a yoke walk with 90 kilos out into the park and and do snatches on, on grass. Um, that would eventually get really tiring. I think it might take me years. Um, but I would eventually just be like, this is, I don't want to do this, you know, um, and that's not a good place to be if it's something you identify with and enjoy, because then you're starting to have this cognitive dissonance with your own identity, you know, uh, and that can that can really suck. Um, and the biggest challenge, like you said, that most bodybuilders get to this on a regular basis is competing, because uh, the competition process, at a certain point, the only thing that's going to carry you over the line is discipline. It is simply not fun, um, and you can you know leverage gratitude uh see the changes in your physique and appreciate oh my god look at this and you finally see uh the, the full magnitude of what you've accomplished in your off season because there's no body fat in the way um you know like when i competed in 2011 and most recently in 2019 there was a point in june in 2019 where i saw myself in fully shredded condition uh, on, on, a, on a refeed day post-workout with the pump got some high quality pictures and good lighting and i saw eight years of work. And I went, holy shit, that's awesome. And that's something you just can't quite see on a day-to-day basis in the off season. Um, and, but but I've been struggling pretty bad you know, uh, through, for most of that month and into May as well. Um, and I kept struggling all the way through, through August. And then even during the reverse or recovery phase, um, where your body is still not back to normal and you're trying to pretend you have a normal relationship with food and getting back to life, you know, it took me, I would probably say there was a period of six months uh, from, let's say, uh, May to November, where I was either feeling bad mentally uh, or physically and trying to get back to either normal or trying to accept the fact that my body fat was fading away or grinding to get lean, you know, different phases in prep and after prep. And uh, that you only get through that with willpower, um, which is something that is a, a limited fuel, um, I think. Uh, commitment, enjoyment, loving the process are um, are fuels that actually are not not even just sustainable, they, they build on themselves. The longer you do it, the deeper that identity gets, the richer the relationship is. You find new ways to enjoy the sport uh, and things like injury and contest prep come along and that's when you got to reach in your back pocket and pull out the willpower card. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's an important consideration because someone who is early in the game of bodybuilding and is very fresh with a sense of mo- uh, motivation, has a new identity, and they want to compete too early, uh, that can really kind of throw a, a, a wrench in the burgeoning uh, relationship they have and really kind of knock them down and challenge them in a way that you really can't anticipate how much of a challenge uh, that process is. Um, and you know, I remember my first contest prep, I looked up and I was almost 50 pounds heavier than I had been two months ago after the contest season was over. And I did not feel like a bodybuilder anymore. I felt like, you know, I could force myself to do anything before, and I had so much motivation and grit to transform my body. And now I can't not eat cheesecake on a random Thursday, you know, like, like w- what happened to the bodybuilder, you know? And that was very, very depressing. Uh, it made me question things, and it, it definitely took me backwards in terms of my um, my relationship with the sport. But it also motivated me and spurred me forward now that I knew that was the case. So there are a lot of things that can be done for the experienced competitor, like um, think of competition like the sun and your Icarus. Um, you need to not get too close to it, uh, and not, not too frequently, or you can burn and crash to the earth. So I think it's uh, something I recommend is only compete at most every other year to give yourself time for that psychological and physical recovery. Um, doing things, um, only compete when you have the mindset of, all right, if I place last in this competition, it would still be worth it. Um, and you might be sitting here going, well, now would not would I be worth it. Why would I Why would I train to lose? And it's not necessarily about that the goal is to get last, but this is something extremely hard. You're gonna have five minutes on stage whether you get first or last. And trust me, the, uh, the, the good feels of that first place trophy don't last nearly as long and don't cut as deep and make you as happy as you nearly expect. Um, If it's about personal betterment, not necessarily um, personal betterment embodied in seven people's opinion that gives you a trophy, uh, that's going to be a much more powerful motivator. So having a deeper connection, having that intrinsic motivation, enjoying the process as much as you can until the process becomes just kind of a grind, uh, competing only when you've recovered all those, those, those fuels to baseline, if you will. Um, that, that, those are kind of the things that I do with my athletes and that we, I talk about a lot, um, because it is, it is a very grueling process and, uh, burnout is very common. Uh, and when you do burnout, it's often, you've been pushed to your, your ninth degree, you know, you're, you're in the the last ring of hell you're in Dante's Inferno and you're like, screw this all. And it's, it's, it's not a good place to be because then you don't have necessarily something to fall back on or you always feel like you had that unfinished chapter. So I think it's really important to, to nurture your relationship with the sport. Um, don't become a stalker. Don't like as soon as you fall in love with it, follow it around with the camera, it's always thinking about it, uh, sending text messages, calling every day, and, and then finding eventually you get the restraining order, uh, which is that unfinished chapter and you can't keep doing it because it was uh, destructive. Rather, think of it as a, a relationship where you wanna one day be sitting on a park bench in your 80s holding hands with it. So you know it's always going to be there. It's not going anywhere. You need to have a deep connection to it. You need to learn more about yourself through the process. Um, so I think for the competitor, that's the perspective you need to have because it is very, uh, a very taxing and challenging process. Um, and unlike many sports where you simply can't play it as as an older person, um, and they don't have a they don't have a league. There's no such thing as masters competition, uh, and all the competitions are are full of people in their twenties who don't have, you know, torn ACLs uh, or you've you've had too many concussions or whatever. Um, I think people naturally find a life after competition with sports that don't exist after your twenties or thirties. Uh, you have to have a a self identity that goes beyond being an athlete, but bodybuilding it's a both a pro and a con you can do it into your eighties. you probably should at least keep lifting into your eighties. Ideally. Um, And you can compete all the way into masters two three four five um, however you'll never get there if you don't figure out a way to make it mean more than that trophy that you might get
0: great man cool man thanks for those insights um i think we're getting towards the end here uh, of your time
1: well one thing i did want to say because you brought up um you brought up terminology and how i I purposely reframed what I said from an obese person to a person with obesity. I think, and I've been there too, when we first started uh, using in clinical practice, um, you know, people first terminology. Uh, and instead of saying, this person's overweight, you're, you're, you know, a person with overweight or a person with obesity. And this, this goes across the board for everything uh, from uh, medical diagnosed illnesses, be they psychological or, or, or physical. Um, to, you know, disease states, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason being is that, like, you know, the easy one that I think a lot of people in personal training are aware of is the, um, uh, the, the back pain. Like, people have back pain without any evidence of, of a problem anymore. And eventually, uh, they've had back pain for so long that it becomes something like they start to see themselves as, my back hurts, I'm a person with back pain, whether they vocalize it or not and it gets wrapped up into uh, their self-identity, their self-perception, their rituals, the way they deal with move, uh, they, they, they guard certain movement patterns and this kind of cascades into them, those movement patterns, being weak and then experiencing pain for longer. Um, and simply getting the person to the point where they can uh, imagine a world where they didn't have back pain is actually difficult. Um, and this is something that I think anyone who's been seriously injured can, can relate to. And the fear of going back to those movements, you know, having kinesiophobia, like, oh, I'm really afraid of a deadlift because last time a deadlift, it put me down a dark hole for three months or, or six months or three years, you know. Um, so you, we can understand that um, the way we see ourselves is very, very important. And the way we think is in words. Uh, and so that means that someone who you trust, like a personal trainer who's speaking out loud and is supposed to be your mentor, uh, if they say, you know, you're obese, that's not really, I mean, it's, it's probably not uh, on purpose. It's probably not meant to be hurtful by any means, um, but it doesn't do much for someone who sees themselves as an obese person to shift it to where they they see it's possible to change. I'm a person who's who currently is with obesity, um, but I would like to not be, um, if you're an obese person, how do you do that? You know, you, That's it, a much more insurmountable change. So I think, uh, the terminology is, is important. Words do matter. Um, I don't think we should be shamed for, for, for saying things differently. Like I always struggle when I write academic papers to say with overweight, because grammar in my head goes wrong. That's not, that's not English, you know, right. um. I can say with obesity, but because that makes sense, and my brain, but the, the, the you know, like, so, so that has nothing to do with my my value judgment about a person. Uh, it's just the way I've spoken for many years. So I think um, I don't like when people go around, you know, shaming others for, for having a slip of the tongue or or saying what feels more natural in their speech. But I do think we should be aware that what we say matters. Uh, and it's not just the absence of saying things that might be, you know, quote unquote hurtful, uh, but it's the possibility of saying things, uh, that are open-ended like that. If I do state that you are someone with a disease state, uh, that's me saying you could be someone with something else. You know, you're not Eric with obesity. You could be Eric with a violin. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you, you are a dynamic person. You, you, you can learn and grow and do many things. And that's the, um, that's the stance that you need to hold when you work with clients—one uh, of possibility, compassion, understanding, and, be- and belief in the client. Because ninety-nine percent of the time, uh, they're not very good at holding that belief. Again, they wouldn't be coming to you to change their whole life if they could, if they, they would, if they knew how to find it in themselves to 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 be different, right?
0: Okay. So,
1: you, your job is to hold the space, to hold the possibility. That they can be their wildest dreams to help them to help them dare to change, um, and to uh, be an example of someone who believes that's possible, who has has tools to help them change, uh, and can help them unlock that part of them that will allow them to change, uh, because they aren't at a point in their life yet uh, who who the, the where they believe that to be possible. So you holding that space, it creates a crack in 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 all those defenses that have been holding them back and. Maybe allows them to step into uh, becoming something that they've always wanted to be.
0: I like that, uh, and I think we didn't really explicitly touch on the topic, but this paints like a nice picture, I think, of a good coaching practice and what it should look mm. like in terms of like um, if we think about the terms prescribing versus guiding. Like yeah. we have to get away from the prescriptive side um, in order for us to be able to appropriately coach the client and, um, yeah, basically got him down a path that's conducive to his own development. And that is also probably going to be the only way that we, um, help to establish a more nuanced understanding of the whole processes that are involved in weight loss and lifestyle change and all that kind of stuff, instead of kind of painting a picture of, well, these are the behaviors you definitely have to check off. Uh, If you don't do those, you know, you're not going to make it. So being a little bit more um, yeah, nuanced and and understanding that different people need different kind of guidance. Some need uh, a little bit more close guidance. Some people you can, I don't know, um, be more independent in terms of how they progress in their, um, in their mind states towards, towards dieting and towards, um, yeah, their own lifestyle. Um, yeah, I thought that was really good. Thank you. Uh, Terminology is something I wanted to get into and especially, um, bodybuilding terminology because there's so many terms that I think are maybe a bit too suggestive or a little bit misleading or might foster behaviors that are not really conducive to the goal. Um, And you've talked about several of them, like, um, for example, diet breaks, which is like a very vague and open term and might be interpreted in uh, many different ways and whatever way suits you at that time. And I think you suggested something like practicing maintenance as an alternative. And Mm -hmm. I think there are numerous examples of terms that are suggestive, too vague, or yeah, whatever, uh, and not really helpful in, in setting up good, Um, behaviors for people but I think this is like another big topic uh, and I think we covered a lot of interesting points on motivation Um, and I'm really glad that you came on, really grateful for your time Um, and what I'd like to do is uh, give a recommendation for you because I know you're a fan of hip-hop and rap the whole culture around it um i know that i'm not sure if you're familiar with the genre of battle rap as such oh yeah yeah you watch it you watch um
1: indeed i remember uh, i remember it's been, it's been a long time since i've watched it but i specifically remember uh idea uh beating shells on on bet in uh in in the final round of one of their battle raps back in that would have been like 2008 or 9 or something like that oh, wow,
0: a long time ago Yeah so I would say that whole genre has progressed quite a bit Um, it's a lot more commercial now but that hasn't really um, been to the yeah I mean that hasn't done it any bad Um, it's only profited from it and there's so many artists um, who are really um, virtuosos that what they do they're they're great with lyricism wordplay and they're just um, yeah amazing with what they do with language and I think Uh, If you ever have time, you probably don't, but if you do, you should check out a guy. His name is Rum Nitty, like rum as the the drink, alcoholic beverage, and Nitty, N-I-T-T-Y. That guy, uh, I think even for academics who have their brain highly stimulated most of the day, this is going to be a different type of stimulation, uh, and, yeah, it might be interesting for you. Rum Nitty, I will check it out. I'm going to send you a YouTube link on that. And um, I have another recommendation. This is kind of random. I just got done reading a book. Um, it's this one called Jaws.
1: Ah, okay.
0: By Sandra Khan and Paul Ehrlich. Um, and she's an orthodontist. Um, and they talk about uh, the, the subtitle is The Story of a Hidden Epidemic. And it's basically about how the development of the jaw has a lot to do with... The um, spread of airway diseases like um, obstructive uh, sleep apnea, for example, or just mouth breathing is, is also a big topic, and how those relate to problems with sleep. Mm. Kind of obvious when you think about it that if your airways are kind of blocked by whatever it is uh, in your mouth that is, you know, blocking the airway, you're not going to get the same quality sleep that you would if your airway were free, and Underdevelopment of the jaw is kind of a very recent um, um, condition of the human human society and um, they have ways to treat it or ways to prevent it rather. And it's like particularly if you, if you have plan on having kids anytime soon, I think this is especially uh, interesting and important, uh, but also just for, you know, developing good oral posture. That's what they talk about a lot in order to prevent stuff like sleep apnea or just bad breathing during sleep which will prevent good sleep from taking place so to speak
1: interesting very cool i will check them both out rum nitty (laughs) exactly
0: all right so thanks so much for coming on um maybe sometime in the future i can have you on again would be a great pleasure um be an honor and Yeah. yeah all right man thanks um And I hope to see you soon. See you in the next episode. All right, man. You have a good one.